From the Foundation for the Mid-South, welcome to Education Equity, a podcast series interviewing educators in the region. The Foundation for the Mid-South is a nonprofit that partners with public and private organizations to fund programs oriented towards economic mobility and racial equity in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. They focus on issues relating to wealth building, community development, healthcare, and education. I'm Virginia Shalino. I'm a Southern Education Leadership Fellow working with them this summer. And over the past two months, I got the opportunity to sit down with a lot of different teachers. I'm going to guide you through my interviews with them so that you can hear about education issues in the words of the educators themselves. This is Education Equity. So in this series, we're going to talk about important, difficult, complicated issues. Episode two is about how we can measure student success, understanding that the achievement gap is really a resource gap, but more on that later. Episode three is about the demographics of the teacher workforce. How can we have a more representative field, more representative classrooms? But this first episode is about COVID. How has it impacted our classrooms? It was a challenging year, but overall, you know, uh, one thing about an educator, you have to be flexible. Our principal, our, well, she's retired now, so our former um, principal said this year, we, it's, our, our key word is flexibility. Uh, my name is Brysel Williams, and um, I teach um, in Wynn, where I was born and raised. Mr. Williams teaches at Wynn Primary School and Although he didn't tell me himself, he's actually a regional finalist for Arkansas Teacher of the Year, and he's taught third grade for the past three years. This year, he's getting ready for a new position as a reading specialist interventionist. Mr. Williams told me about how he reacted to these new COVID restrictions in his classroom. At first, before as we were prepping, because you know, we were told that we had to, you know, take out a lot of things and we had to do our, um, set up our desk or tables, you know, make sure the students, the scholars are, you know, six feet apart. We had to kind of, and at first, you know, when you, when you're being overloaded with information, it does, it kind of weighs you down and you have that feeling like, oh, I can't, I cannot do this. You know, I, I know how I normally set up my room. Can I actually do this? My cousins and I, we walked every evening and she knew something was bothering me, um, you know, because like I said, I was thinking about the upcoming year and how we were going to make this work for our scholars. And she reassured me and she said, listen, you are an educator. You know how to think outside the box. You are going to make those scholars feel welcome. They're not going to even worry about COVID because they're going to have a teacher who's going to make the atmosphere amazing. And so, like I say, you know, instruction had to be different, but setting the expectation, yeah, more duties, cleaning, and we had to start doing breakfast in the classroom, all of that. It was still an awesome year. Mm-hmm. It was an awesome year. Uh, many of us came home very exhausted because, like, you know, um, we had, of course, you had scholars going back and forth, switching from virtual to face to face. We had that going on. And so it was, I'm not going to kid you, it was a lot. Um, and sometimes you just have to pull back and just say, you know, take a deep breath and say, you know what? Okay, I'll just try to see, I'll come back and do this again tomorrow. 
I also talked to another young classroom teacher named Sarah Camino. Sarah and I were actually friends in high school, uh, so she was born and raised in Mississippi just like I was, but after graduation, she went off to do Teach for America, and she spent the past year working in Jefferson Parish School District. She works on scholar support, so with students who need individualized education plans. It's my understanding that there was a lot of like shifting roles and ways that we were working for students this year in particular. So I started the year working in person. Um, although Orleans Parish and Jefferson Parish were both um, strictly virtual learning for the first quarter of the school year um, last year, my school was offering students that had IEPs or special education plans to come in person so that they were able to properly receive their accommodations at the beginning of the year. So I was one of two teachers at my school that worked in person for that first quarter. And I will admit, like, I was a little nervous about being in person just at the very beginning of the year. Not only was it my, like, first time teaching, but I was also, like, we were at the height of, like, the pandemic here. So I was kind of concerned about that. But it was actually like a really like overall, it was a really good experience. And I got to learn a lot in that first quarter that I probably wouldn't have been able to learn um, online for sure. Once you started to teach in person, did you feel safe? I, I did. I did feel safe. I definitely felt worried, but I also felt safe at the same time. So as you can hear from both of these teachers, Bryceel Williams and Sarah Camino, they their initial reactions were fear. They were anxious about what they were going to change in their classrooms. They were anxious about their own health, about their students' health, about teaching in a new medium. And they were not the only teachers who felt that way. Larry Carter, the president of the Louisiana Federation for Teachers, told me that that was the main concern teachers expressed to him when he spoke to them. Can you talk a little bit about your stories that you heard and the needs that teachers had when they were teaching during the pandemic? Sure, sure, yes. Um, I heard quite a few stories um, in, in, in terms of the, the level of fear and anxiety that teachers um, were, were having with returning back to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the stories we were here uh, were uh, about the need to protect their families as well as protect the needs and, uh, of, of their students. And because there was so little information known at the time when the pandemic first occurred as it related to how it was spread throughout the community uh, from person to person, there's a lot of anxiety that teachers felt, parents felt, our community felt, as well as the students. Um, when you talked about returning to school, you can just imagine where once we started following the science and started recognizing, you know, soon after we started shutting down schools in, in, in March of 2020, um, with the governor's proclamation, it really alerted us all to there's a, a need for us to take our time uh, for a safe return. And, and, and that social aspect we saw was ripped uh, from its very foundation through the pandemic. And I think um, if anything we need to really be looking out for is um, some of the, the, the mental anguish that some of our students and our working people have faced because of the pandemic. We can't do enough to talk about the mental health impact this has had on, especially students, teachers, and families across the country. And then going into the classroom, not knowing, a, a, again, another family's ideal of how to be safe versus 
come into school without worrying about a vaccination or worried about the safety protocols became difficult sometimes from some educators, some parents and some students to navigate. That is um, and has been a traumatic experience for so many. And even today, there are discussions around, should I even return back this year because of the variants that are now popping up across you know, the country and even across the world. So, And so there is a chance that some schools will go back with no mask recommendations. That's Dr. David Holcomb. I'm the regional administrator and medical director for the Office of Public Health for Central Louisiana. Here, Dr. Holcomb's picking up where President Carter left off, talking about those variants and how they might impact the future of public education in Louisiana. Well, this is a perfect storm because you're going to put all these unvaccinated children together when we have variants that are currently only 1.3%, but by the time school starts, will probably be 30, 40, or 50%. What President Carter and Dr. Holcomb have hinted at is that the COVID pandemic might not be over. And if it isn't, we need to pay attention to the strategies that worked. And we also need to remember the lessons that we learned along the way, like the importance of mental health my name is Sanford Johnson. I'm the executive director of Teach Plus Mississippi. So I uh, run the Mississippi uh, Policy Fellowship. I also uh, manage the work in Arkansas. We have an Arkansas state director now, and there's a there's Teach Plus Arkansas. Can you talk about some of those problems that you felt were being exacerbated by the pandemic? So I think uh, issues around uh, social and emotional learning and mental health were major problems like students dealing with trauma. Like I think those were problems long before the pandemic, but when you think about what our students have been through over the past year and a half, uh, there was a there was a pandemic. Uh, so we shut schools down. Students have been isolated. There have been students who've been sick. They've seen family members, unfortunately, pass away. There were, like, right early on during the pandemic, there were a couple of tornadoes that destroyed houses in several different communities. So students had to deal with that. And then I think you also have to talk about uh, the impact that George Floyd's, uh, George Floyd's murder had on students. And it sort of brought up, like, a lot of issues around around what kind of country are we going to live in? How do we talk about racism? How do we how do we come up with a way to become more anti-racist as a country? And how, like, what do we do with, like, now that this is on the forefront right now, how do we talk about it and how do we move forward? So there were a lot of things that were going on right now that have had an impact on students. And teachers are going to need to be prepared for all of this when uh, students eventually go back into the classroom and all. Like, how do we address uh, make possible gaps in uh, where students are academically? How do we address the social and emotional needs of students? How do we have these conversations about, about race and the role that race plays in not just how our schools run, but uh, what's happening in our community? So uh, our teachers are going to need to be prepared for all of that. Do you think that based on what you're seeing, are you hopeful that that teachers are going to have the support that they need to deal with those problems? Well, I think that's one of the things that we're focusing on right now. And I think uh, there, there's a lot of benefit that could come from the uh, stimulus funding that uh, that schools are getting. We ended up doing focus groups with several teachers across the state of Mississippi to find out how they would want uh, that money to be invested. And the first thing that came up was around mental health. Um, they also wanted to make sure that we were addressing uh, learning loss uh, with students. Uh, they're 
like, like students are going to be in several different places regarding like depending on how much access to education they've had over the past year and a half. Um, and then we also need to address like special populations within our uh, within our student body who may need additional services. Um, really thinking about like students who require special education services, like what services need to be provided for them. We also have English language learners who have not been getting the support that they needed uh, over the past 18 months. So how do we address their needs? What kinds of supports are helpful for teachers in working in those circumstances? Well, one of the difficulties about a pandemic like this, it exposes the, the deficiencies that some class of individuals in the community have versus others. In our rural communities, we saw a grave cavern between the use of technology, the access to technology, and the infrastructure for technology. So I know our governor was, was, was working as hard as he could by securing federal funds to help mitigate some of those um, caverns in terms of the disparity we saw. And if we're doing majority of the class whether it's a virtual for parents who made the choice or virtual for students um, who was in the classroom and some who who out in terms of how they communicate with their teachers after hours. Um, we saw that cavern real quickly. They may have, and even some of our urban centers, I'll be honest, like a New Orleans metropolitan area, um, there was still, even in those centers, a lack of adequate internet service. Our school made sure that we were really communicating with families to find out what their specific needs were. So we were able to provide laptops and um, Wi-Fi routers for students that didn't have access to laptops or Wi-Fi. Because you yeah. can, like, there are definitely schools where that probably was like the central issue. Yeah, I know there are schools like in this area too that weren't able to do that. And I think yeah. we were really lucky that we were able to, because you're right, I don't think that's the norm. Um, and like, even with that, we still, you know, like, we still had some issues with students not like breaking laptops or losing them or things like that. So I can't imagine what that would look like in a situation where we weren't able to provide those things to students. We had in some parishes, they're so remote in some cases, where they would have to take a school bus, outfitted with those adapters so that they can get Wi-Fi from a remote location and the school buses would drive in certain areas of that community and students and parents either walk that area or drive that area to do schoolwork. The lack of um, internet infrastructure and access, you know, is already a huge mm -hmm. problem of, of access and economic mobility and, and everything and education, even without the pandemic. And like so many things, it just seems like the pandemic sort of exacerbated it and made it really clear what a big issue it was. Very valuable insight. One other thing that was just as important as the internet service, food insecurity. We found out that a lot of our students, whether it was in the urban and or rural communities, their families really depended heavily on the food services from the school systems. And when you have poverty in a state like Louisiana, the school serving two of those three meals a day is so, so important. So you had school districts becoming very innovative and having outsourced some of the resources to, to, to companies that would come in and deliver food to students, homes, or the cafeteria employees will prepare the food along with teachers and school support personnel 
stand outside and have parents and students come up and if they get deliver and hand deliver the food to them in person, or they would go knock on doors thinking about um, how important schools are for the nutritional value that a student has at least for seven, eight hours of their day. Recognizing them as essential workers during the pandemic, my opinion sort of encapsulated that that um, need to recognize them all the time, as it did with a lot of employees in the in the country. Yeah, um, to, to to really see teachers and school employees and anyone in the, the you know education in particular for us it was K twelve to be declared essential meant a lot. It, it it meant a lot to us because we knew and we always felt that we were essential to the day-to-day operations in society as it relates to educating kids. Now, what it did do though, it, it, it showed to parents, it showed to the community, and I know it definitely showed to me how important teachers were in our community. Uh, we had parents who were at home with their kids now 24 hours instead of um, the eight or seven hours that teachers would normally spend with them sometimes during the day. Um, when you talk about the aspect of having kids in school or even younger kids in child or daycare, that responsibility was really thrusted upon some of our parents who needed to be at work. Um, so much so that we would certainly see parents and community members look at teachers in a slightly different way when it comes to the importance and the essential um, um, positions that they held in, you know, in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the connection between the teacher and the household became to me more important. You had teachers in their own homes with their kids in the background while teachers were at home teaching other people's kids virtually. Mm -hmm. We would hear about teachers going beyond the normal work day, spending time with a parent who kid may not have adjusted to the virtual um, way of instruction and a parent or teacher um, through that technology, sharing that lesson with that student again. So from all of this, we've heard from teachers themselves, how they've had to adapt their classroom, their own fears, their concerns for their students as well as for their own safety. And we've heard from people who've worked with classroom teachers about how they navigated those fears and from healthcare experts uh, of the strategies that needed to take place to keep everybody safe. I wanna leave you with one last thought. This is from Superintendent Kelly Joseph, who also works in Louisiana, talking about some of the wraparound programs that her school's able to offer that confront some of these health disparities and provide mental health support too. Good morning, my name is Kelly Joseph. I am the superintendent for St. Helena Parish School District. So the first partnership I wanna talk about is Southeast Community Health Systems. They've been in St. Helena for over 20 years and we, they have a health clinic at each one of our um, school sites. And they provide a full suite of medical services for all our kids, because the one thing we need to know is that our students are healthy so that they can be in the classroom, um, you know, and and be able to focus on instruction. They also provide mental health services. So uh, parents don't have to worry about coming in to school, picking their children up. They can actually get all of their medical needs met right there um, at school. In addition, Southeast Community Health Systems really helped us out during the peak of the pandemic. They provided free testing for all of our students. They also, um, and we were ahead of the game with that. Um, They are also providing free vaccinations for not just our students, but also for our, our faculty and staff and just everybody within the community. 
They provide vouchers for uniforms. They, they just really do uh, whatever it is that we need from them, they do provide it. So very, we're very fortunate to have that partnership. I think it's important to leave off with this image of the wraparound programs that Superintendent Joseph is able to ensure for her students because it's a reminder that the problems exacerbated by the COVID pandemic, such as food insecurity, the lack of access to internet, and other things like that, they weren't created by the pandemic and they're going to exist afterwards. They're things that we're going to need to confront. We're gonna talk more about those in the next episode. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Education Equity is produced by me, with introduction music by Ben Russman, closing and accent music by Jace Arroway. Research support from the Foundation for the Mid-South and the Southern Education Foundation. Education Equity is a product of and for the Foundation for the Mid-South. Thank you.